How are we all doing this morning? We're looking a little stunned. We need to breathe. We need to come into this thing. Okay.
Okay, come on, let's get livelier now. Let's get to one here. Okay, I have a uh, something to share with you, something I found last week. I thought it was really interesting, because I love it when you get into the Bible and you're learning something, and all of a sudden you go, wow, I did not know that meant that. And that's kind of what happened to me last week, because I've always stumbled over um, the meek shall inherit the earth. Because as a guy, and I think most of us really don't like the idea that we're meek, and so I want to give you an idea, and some of you may know this, don't know, but uh, this is what the dictionary in the English language, this is what the dictionary calls meek, okay? And see if this describes you. Dictionary.com describes meekness as docile, overly compliant, spiritless, yielding, or tame. And the Merriam-Webster defines it as mild, deficient in courage, submissive, and weak. So, I really don't like the idea of being all those things. I don't like thinking that uh, the meek will inherit the earth. If that's what the earth is going to look like, it's like that's not real exciting. So, went back and looked at some stuff, and let me find it here. That's my zucchini lasagna loaf recipe. Um, got into cooking lately. So, this is what meekness is in Greek, which is what the Bible was translated into the Septuagint, okay? And this is actually what meek means. Greek war horses were meeked. In other words, it meant they were trained to stay in battle rather than flee at the sound of cannons. A meek person doesn't shy away from taking a stand. Rather, the stand is taken at the right time with the right people. So to be meek or to be meeked means you're trained and you're ready for battle. Big difference, big difference.
Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Lighthouse Community Church. Glenn, when did you start reading the Bible? Just last week. I, good for you. Uh, well, welcome, everyone. As I do every week, I don't want to mean to bore you, but we really want to encourage you to take this Connections card, fill it out with any prayer requests you have. In fact, one I could ask that you would all join us and pray for. Our, one of our senior elders, Rich Rapoli, has asked that we... Um, be in prayer for the men's breakfast. It happens every, every other month, and it's coming up on Saturday the 22nd at 7 a.m., so be in prayer for who you might bring and uh, plan to be there, uh, gentlemen. And uh, young adults are meeting tomorrow night, it looks like, at the family room across the street with our own Pastor Josh Espinosa leading the crew. And that's for young adults 18 to 30, or those like myself who identify within that age range. Um, also, um, this has been a hard year for the Lighthouse family. We've lost a couple people that really kind of shook us, and one of them was our own John Whiteman, who was one of our elders and one of the most committed men to this church that I've known. And uh, so um, we've, um, it's been a while since he actually died, but um, our memorial service will be happening for him on the 15th, July 15th, in here at 3 p.m., and there'll be lunch served across the street. So put that on your calendar and plan to be here as we honor John Whiteman. And um, anybody go to the bonfire Friday? It, no? <laughs> it was, uh, uh, I'm, well, those who did, was it a good time? Hopefully everybody had a great time. Perfect. If you missed it, it's happening again in August, so plan on that. And why don't we uh, stand and greet each other with a good morning, hello, hug, kiss, and whatever is appropriate. <laughs> Yeah, so far so good, just kind of living off three.
All right, you guys all done super greeting. 10.17. I have to keep that in mind. I have to check my start times. Good morning upstairs. Good morning downstairs. Good morning all people. How are you doing this morning? Good? Feeling good? Yes? I like how Ken was asking about the bonfire, but I don't remember seeing you, Ken, at the bonfire. Here's an update for you, Ken, wherever you are. If you go to the bonfire, then you'll know who's at the bonfire. I like, I did see some people that I haven't seen, which is fun to go to the bonfire, but I noticed that I'm about to explode, perhaps. I just shut my mic off for a second and was hoping that the guitar or something, I shut it off for a second to try to calm it all down. I do like the thank you sound team for that. That was a very powerful effect. If you could wait to the right time in the message and then do that, I think that God would then be able to move some of the slower mover people if he felt that, you know, something was about to happen. I don't... We're only talking about the first martyr today, so, I mean, we really should have some type of electrical interference. I wanted to share with you the position and the pose of what was the original pastoral pose in the early days of yore, and I'm actually talking about early days. So all of you know that the Bible, the inspiration for the Bible was the printing press was made so that the Bible could be printed, right? You understand that? This is how important the Bible was, is, and shall be. So from the very earliest times on, not only was it printed, but it was said that for any pastor, do I have this in the right hand? Yes, to the flag and to the, I want everything. A pastor, all he needed was in the 1600s to stand before a congregation and speak was his King James Bible and Fox's Book of Martyrs. It was said that by these two things, a pastor had all the empowerment that they needed. Now, today, the fun part about, fun part about talking about this is we're actually going to talk about the inspiration for the first entry into this book. And by the way, this incredible book, John, I can now return to you if you would like your, you are my King James Bible brother. The first entry into this book is the gentleman that we've been talking about in chapter 7. And his life was so inspirational that the individual, Fox, who wrote this book, said, at some point in time, it's really important for us in the church, 1,560 years past when Stephen actually gives his life, right? Probably 35 AD, 37 AD for Stephen. He said, it's really important for us to remember those who have gone before us. I wrote down here the actual book's original title, which Acts and moments of these later and perilous days. Surprised that that one didn't make it, but I guess in the 1500s, that was pretty snappy, right? What happened was, is the church got this book and they realized the acts of these people, these perilous times, were the people who paid the ultimate price for their faith. And they figured if they wrote down just a small little paragraph, a small little something to remind themselves, it would be inspirational, And I don't know if you've still kind of thought about this. This book was printed on early, was considered to be so valuable. Now I'm getting strobe lights, which is fabulous. This is even better. I got strobe and electric this morning. This is, but I just wanted to remind you that today when we get a chance to talk about this, uh, chapter seven was the introduction of him. And last week you were so kind to allow me to do 50 verses. And today I'm only going to do 10 verses. I'm going to try to do it in the same amount of time, an hour and a half to two and a half hours. And then after the service today, 
I will allow any of you who are not calling yourselves full-time or members of the church a small little interlude to leave, and then we'll conduct a little bit of church business at the end of service as well. But just know, I want to do Stephen, the 10 verses on this. You want to do Stephen right this morning? Because the reality is, I think a lot of us have not made consideration for the fact that ultimately what we're going to find out today, I'm going to give you the punchline a little bit. Stephen volunteered to serve widows. That's all he made himself available to do. And yet this entire chapter is dedicated to one man's endeavor. We call them deacons now. We talked about some of our deacons in the church last week. But this man volunteered to meet one need. The need was widows in the church were not being fed fairly, whatever that meant. And the claim was favoritism. And so one wise young man was available, along with a couple other guys, to simply do food distribution, not preach, not teach, and surely not go to the ends of what Stephen is about to show us today. So with that, I want you to realize something. Acts, the book, the whole entire book, even though it's a little bit long, it only covers the first 30 years of the church, okay? And we're so blessed to have it because what we see is like in those first few chapters, I think basically one through three, it was just church growth and church growth, and they were doing so well. But as it is with any kind of church growth, at some point you're going to run into those hiccups. Four, five, and six, the hiccups started, right? The conflict from within, the conflict from without, people being kind of made accusations against and for. So by the time we get to chapter seven to have this moment to spend time with Stephen, I think it's really important. Along with that, I should also mention this. Although Stephen's willing today to kind of go the distance He's going to actually be willing to give his life his, for the faith that he has made this commitment to. There is another motivation for that. The Bible talks about the crowns that we labor for. So I just want to encourage you too. It's not just to have your name memorialized in some type of book that continues to be a source of encouragement for the church, right? For those who are willing to pay this price, and not only is your life worth something as you lived it, I mean, I think Stephen was probably in his mid-30s, so just like with Jesus, young, but it reminds us that there's a crown set aside for those who will die giving their life for the faith. So just realize something. We labor for those things. What are we laboring for? We, we, we labor not for the things where moth and rust and thieves can steal, right? But we labor up here in a holding place. And so Stephen's going to show us Today's message also reminds us of one thing. Stephen's life will come to a conclusion by the end of chapter 7. And in chapter 8, we're going to just touch on the very first verse about who was there condoning the actual death of Stephen. And I just want to encourage you of one thing. The individual that's going to condone Stephen's death will actually be the last kind of scene in chapter 7 as they lay Stephen's clothes at this individual's feet. And from that individual... The seed of life is actually going to be placed at this individual's feet. And I think it's just a fabulous point before I even pray this morning that the person who's actually the single greatest persecutor of the early Christians, who's there taking the life of this early kind of believer, this up-and-coming young guy, Stephen, will actually be the person who most benefits by the life of Stephen. So think about this. The kind of people that God sees as a candidate for faith, as I encourage you to bring people to church and to share the faith that you have, the kind of people that God sees as a candidate for faith sometimes may be the single greatest proponent of faith. 
right? We're going to see that today in the introduction of an individual named Saul. So pray with me, if you would, as we begin, and then we'll be reading Acts chapter 7, 51 through 60, and then we'll also have one verse of chapter 8. Father God, I thank you for the morning. I thank you for the opportunity to think about all those who have gone before us, all those who have paid a price. I mean, it, it, not in a week goes by where I don't think about first responders or our military or anybody out there who's, who's willing for the sake of our freedoms to pay that price. And yet, spiritually speaking, this individual today in chapter 7, Stephen will be the recorded first martyr. And the idea that he was simply a volunteer who raised his hand to be used by God and simply said, you know, here am I, Lord, you know, send me, use me. And to the degree that you use him and the degree that his life sounds and feels and resonates with the very way that you kind of came and went, Father, I just, I hope and pray that this morning that that's not only inspirational to those in this building, but even those that will hear this message later on to remind themselves that sometimes what we volunteered for, sometimes what we raised our hand to in regards to the kingdom of God is not what you have in store. And the only way that we're going to see that all the way to the end is like Stephen, is simply to say, Lord, I'm here, I'm available, send me. I pray this morning for that encouragement and that blessing. I ask these things in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. So let me read. Try to be as proficient as I can on the timeline. I only have 10 verses, and then we will take some time to dive into each one of these verses since we have plenty of it this morning. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised, and you are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through the angels, but you have not obeyed it. And when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he looked up into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this, they covered their ears in yelling at the top of their voices, and they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees, cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Verse 8, and Saul approved of their killing him. Now, the first thing that comes to mind in this passage is, as you hear a passage like that being read, a lot of different things kind of jump out at the pages for you. But I want the first thing that you guys to realize is one thing. At no point in time does Stephen, during those accusations that are being placed against him, try to defend himself. Now, that's kind of a, a lesson inside of a lesson just in that alone. How many of us right now in the world that we're living in, when the accusations are made against us, for whatever reason we're living or doing something that's godly, that's putting us in that light, one of the first things that feels so important for us to, to do is to defend ourselves, right? We feel this incredible need to say, I must 
defend myself, especially if I'm being attacked for something like character or integrity. But when we look at this passage, there's not only no point where Stephen's trying to defend himself, but I would actually reckon with you, he actually turns the table from the very beginning and says, okay, you're making four accusations against me. I went over those accusations last week, right? Blaspheming of the temple, blaspheming of Jesus, blaspheming of God, and blaspheming of, I don't recall the fourth one, but hopefully you have your notes. Four accusations are against him, and as I break this out for you this morning, what you will see is he's now going to return the favor and put four accusations back on them. I don't know about you this morning, but that was just a really good encouragement to me before I get into how he defends himself is that, you know what, let's let the word of God and let's let God be our defenders. If the world decides to come after us, if the world decides to say something about us, if we're lucky enough to be persecuted for the very faith that we have, let's not cower to that. Let's not fear what the world's going to try to say or do about us, but let's hold fast to God's word and stand and meet our accusers. Because his opening line, you men who are stiff-necked, is not a cowering to their effect. Okay? Stiff-necked has been part of the verbiage that's been used to Israel from the very beginning. The idea of stiff-necked comes from the idea of an oxen. Okay? So they're an agrarian society. They're doing lots of things in the ground. And one of the animals that they come to use on a regular basis is an ox. And one of the things that's been very well noted about an ox is it's one of the most powerful beings that they can have to help them do what they need to do. But to get that ox to turn its head, to get that ox to move in any way is a very difficult thing. So although the potential for what the ox can actually do is fabulous, the actual work required to move the yoke and to get the oxen to move is a problem. And so that kind of mindset, that verbiage of being stiff-necked is being related to them saying, you, the potential in you is great, and what you could actually do would be incredible, especially if you would just come to me, but you continue to be stiff-necked about everything that you said and everything that you do. Remember in the beginning also I mentioned to you that the feet of, uh, at the feet of, of Saul are Stephen's clothes going to be laid, and the idea there is that they're saying, hey, we, we're going to kill the person you've authorized to do, and they're going to put him at the feet, and now I'm going to tell you a little in advance that God's going to actually use Stephen's clothing and his life as a seed planted in the number one enemy of the church, of the, of the, church, of the faith of God at the time. Because God sees something in a stiff-necked people. God sees something in someone who's so committed to their faith that, remember, Saul is so committed to his faith that he's on a path to kill every person who makes a profession of faith to Christianity. He believes that Christianity is going to be a blasphemy against their faith. And so once again, you stiff-necked people, you've been persecuting Jesus from the beginning of time. Matter of fact, I can tell you this, your generational has been doing this on and on. So you're doing nothing more than what you've been doing. You're uncircumcised in your heart and in your ears. Now, circumcision was a ritual that was given to Abraham to show that you were part of his covenant. So it's part of Genesis 17, 1 through 4. It talks about the land that was promised and the idea that through Abraham, the whole world was going to be blessed. So the accusation to be uncircumcised means that your ears and your heart and your mind is rejecting the things that God's Spirit is saying. It's an external ex uh, uh, accusation against someone saying, even if you have been circumcised, the fact that your heart and your ears do not hear what God's saying, the fact that you don't see that Jesus is the Messiah is an indication that it's not true in your life. 
if you follow God's word, if you let God's word be something that leads, guides, and directs you, that is the very proof of the circumcision of your heart and of your ears. He's all, they said that they're always resisting the Holy Spirit, their third accusation. Okay? How have they always been resisting the Holy Spirit? Talking about the beginning of time. Remember when Moses was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments for the Lord, he was up there for a period of time. And as Moses was up there, they had another person who was leading him. It was the handsome, well-spoken Aaron, the one that Moses originally thought, maybe you should select him. And what does Aaron succumb to while Moses is gone for these 40 days? He succumbs to building a calf and allowing the people to, to fall into idol worship. And they actually come to the point where they believe that this calf would be their rescuer. Right? And we've talked about that from the very beginning of their time with the Lord. When the Lord was trying to speak to them, they turned their back on the Lord. What about later on when Joshua was involved? Joshua made a charge to the Israelites. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, something that I love to say every morning. Choose this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's Joshua that said that, right? And Joshua makes this plea to the Israelites. He's saying, choose who you're going to serve. It's really important. And yet Joshua realized something, that they had this propensity in them, and he believed that they would not serve the Lord. And upon Joshua's death in Judges 2, it talks about how the Israelites continue to fall into disobedience. You have been resisting the Holy Spirit from the very beginning. And finally, the fourth accusation you do just as your fathers did. You do just as your fathers did. So Stephen's saying this, look, you, Sanhedrin, you're the ones that are over me right now. Weren't you the same ones that were just over Jesus's trial? Yes, you were. And if you weren't, you're the children of those who were over that trial. You're the legacy of generational sin. You've been sinning from the beginning. You've inherited sin, and you continue to establish this idea that what your parents did and what your parents saw is what you're doing. Even though this law was given to you, the idea that the law of God was written down and handed to them, you don't follow it. And I can't help but think about this. Even today, when it comes to having the idea of generational sin, we talk about, well, I'm from a long line of alcoholics, right? Until God's spirit moves into that individual's life and they realize something, I don't have to continue this any longer. Until someone makes a profession of faith and says, in the name of Jesus, this is no longer the thing that controls me. For a lot of us, we inherit this sin. We kind of just follow into what's been before us. And instead of seeing that God can make a new creation in us, we simply continue on with what has always been. So by the time they get to verse 52, he says, and what did, your, what did your parents do when they had a prophet come and say, this is who you should believe in, this is what God's trying to say? They killed them. Not only did they kill them, they even killed the righteous one. And I put the verse in here, Hebrews eleven seventeen, 17, to talk about how they actually killed them. It's documented pretty proficiently how they treated all the prophets, okay? And this is all relative to this. How were the prophets treated? They were stone, they were sawn in two, Hebrews eleven thirty seven. They were tempted, they were slain with the sword, they were placed in sheepskins or goatskins, being destitute, afflicted with sickness, ill-treated, and tormented. What is your record when it comes to those who have been sent to rescue you? Your record says that you have been doing this the same way your fathers did. Moving on to verse 53. So what happens? What happens when you actually receive the law and you had a chance to do something different? This was the law that Moses brought down on Mount Sinai. So it's not, it's not necessarily about angels. I don't know why it talks about angels in there. 
There's no really references in any of the study stuff that I could find about angels. It's more about the relationship with God that God tried to give them something to focus them on. And instead, what, does, what did they do with that? They simply, they refute it. Moses has to make a kind of prof- a fr- profession of faith when he comes down there. Who is with me? Who is with the Lord? And in that moment, as we've talked about, the Lord then separates, opens up the ground, and swallows all those that would pull Israel down. He has to try to transform them from the idea of worshiping something made with hands. We talked about this last week, that God does not live in a place made by our hands. He's not subject to being trapped in a temple or trapped in an ark. His presence is everywhere. They've been worshiping him and following him from the very beginning. Now, these first four things is basically the fullness of his offense. He's basically giving them an absolute rhetorical to everything they said to him. And Stephen simply says, this is the truth of what is. Those accusations you made against me, you know them not to be true. So you do whatever you have to do. But I believe that God has called me to speak. And so speak, he has. Their response to them is brutal. And the Sanhedrin treat him like, "Mm, I'm not really sure what to say of this, but the verbiage here, when the Sanhedrin heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. So I looked up a little bit about some of these words. Enraged is a Greek word used for mob mentality. The ideas of furious is the same words as infuriate. It means to become extremely angered. Being angered and gnashing your teeth, okay? I don't know about you, but those do not sound like terms that you would use for a group of religious leaders. But remember, we're talking about the Sanhedrin. We're talking about the ruling class, the the, the highest form of religious oversight that the people of Israel had. And this idea of gnashing your teeth, well, gnashing your teeth is used in the Bible. I found about 12 different references. I only wrote down three. One of the, the points that I found, anytime gnashing teeth was involved, it was referring to hell demonic activity, or the wicked. A couple of the verses that kind of summarize that, Psalm 112, the wicked see things and they're vexed. They will gnash their teeth and melt away. Their desires of them will perish. Matthew 8, the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, an attribute or a description of hell. Mark 9, And whenever it seizes him, talking about this specific demon, it slams him to the ground, it foams at the mouth, and it grinds his teeth, stiffening him out. I even asked the disciples to cast him out, for which they could not. And yet these are the attributes being described about a group of people that are seeing this trial of this young man. I don't know about you, but this is another point for me kind of inside. Some of the things I'm seeing about society today are an indication of kind of where those people come from. Right? We hope people would be Christian. We, we pray that people are Christian. Sometimes people say they're Christian, but the attributes that are coming off the person indicate what that person is, right? The Sanhedrin, for me, can say whatever they want to say about who they are and what they believe. But the attributes, the actions that they're having being angered and the next passage is they're plugging their ears they're literally doing and refuting they're doing everything that stephen is making the accusation they're following exactly into that so it's kind of exposing them for who they are and anytime you see someone gnashing their teeth you're not thinking wow this person's at peace right you're not thinking this person's doing well i don't know if you've ever talked to someone who's gnashed their teeth before Um, usually two-year-olds right now are the closest way to get that Take away something and you might get a teeth gnashing and you're thinking, okay, they would consume me right now. If they could, forget their baba, they would just chew my hand off. They want. So it's not an attribute that you want, yet Stephen's sitting there looking at the people that are in charge and control over his life 
and they're gnashing their teeth. And then verse 55, and Stephen just says this, I'm, you know, full of the Holy Spirit. He looks up into heaven, and it says he saw the glory of God, and Jesus was standing at the right hand of God. Now, this is some, this is some powerful stuff that comes up through this passage. What exactly is so offensive to them? What exactly is just ex- making their spirit explode? And I, and I put in here, being full of the Holy Spirit. Like, he is so radiant of the Holy Spirit. What's coming off of him and what's coming out of him is literally everything that's offensive to them. It's a total affront to their call and claim to faith. It's basically just proof that they are operating in a way that's completely opposed to God. Because the verbiage that's even being talked about them is more angry mob mentality than it is religious leader mentality. Now, regardless of who the religious leaders are, you'd think they would have some form of control. That's not being kind of communicated at all. I can't help but fall back to chapter 4, the first time the church was being accused of something. And the church decided, okay, I'm not sure why we're being challenged. I'm not sure why we're being accused, but we should probably do something. What should we do in this moment? How should we hold fast? And the church decided, well, let's pray. And let's pray in such a way that we pray for boldness. And church, I can't help but think about if you were praying for boldness and you wanted to look what boldness looks like, look no farther than this. This is a gentleman who's done nothing wrong, who's simply done what God has called him to do. Remember, he's just volunteered to feed widows. He starts off doing good. He starts getting a little bit of uh, recognition. And for that, he's then placed in front of the Sanhedrin to explain what he's been doing. Doing nothing wrong, he then turns the table on them and says, look at what you're doing. Don't look at what I'm doing. Look at what you've actually done. And for that, this boldness that's coming out, I feel like it's just, like I said, the Spirit of God is speaking through him powerfully and clearly. Once again, I told you in the beginning, if you're accused, what should you do? Should you fall back on your own volition and try to speak on your own behalf? I would say what Stephen was trying to tell us from the very beginning is when that happens, hold fast and open your mouth to the Lord and simply say, Lord, speak to and through me. The boldness required to do that is powerful. What does he see in return for this prayer? It says the glory of God. Um, and I look at the cross-referencing it up. It says to see God as magnificent in his full radiance. Now, I don't know about you, but when's the last time that you saw God in his magnificence, in his full radiance? If, if you're about to be killed, if, if you're, I mean, sometimes we overrate how long we live and what life is all about. I mean, Stephen's like made peace, like whatever's going to happen is going to happen. But it, regardless of what happens, if the last thing you see, if you're looking up, if you see God in his full radiance, I can't imagine anything but encouragement being thought, you know, it's got to be like, yes, this is going to be great. Whatever happens is going to happen. I know that God is in it. And so my brain starts wondering, um, you know, know, there's a song, I can only imagine what it will be like. You know, when I walk by a side, like my wife always makes me turn that. Her empathetical point of view in life is so strong that she radiates with the song. But like I, I don't have a lot of empathy in that kind of thing. And I need someone to remind me, what is it going to be like? And then I thought, why do we have to wait to like death? What happens if we could live like right now in that same kind of way? What if we actually saw ourselves right now, like where we are today? You're not just a volunteer. You're not just an usher or a greeter. Like you're laboring for the kingdom of God. And the conversation you're having with someone, you don't know what that person went through last night. You don't know what that person went through this morning. You don't know how close to life or how close to death that person is or what their health is or what their mental status is. You don't know that the conversation you're having, you don't know what it's doing. But if you thought about the magnificence and the radiance and the glory of God 
and you just thought about that as you were trying to do the volunteer work that God has called us to do, what kind of empowerment could that give us? What kind of strength could that give us? Because Stephen's doing something that's way beyond his pay grade. Someone told me this week, Pastor Jeff, you know, how often do you do something that's kind of beyond your understanding? Every day, right? Every day. I can remember all the way back, like into my younger days, telling the Lord in high school, I love defense, I love defense, I love defense. Just let me tackle people and smash people. That's all I wanted to do. He did to my sophomore year in high school. Unfortunately, a small, ma a small football team, we had eight-man football, so we only had like 16 guys, 17 guys on the team. Quarterback gets smashed, one of the favorite people that I love smashing on the other side. And the coach says, hey, Lee, you can throw the ball, can't you? Sure, coach, whatever. I had no idea what that would mean for my junior and senior years. I never, ever tackled a person ever again and only got smashed the rest of my life, right? <laughs> but Lord, remember the deal we had my sophomore year. I just like smashing people. And Lord, I have something else in mind, right? You go to school and I have an idea. You know, this school stuff, this is great for everyone. I just want to get married and work and have a family. I mean, I get all that. My sophomore year, I couldn't have been any happier marrying my wife my sophomore year and saying goodbye to school. It just wasn't that exciting. Only at 37 for God to say, oh, by the way, you know, to be a pastor, you're going to need a lot more education. Get ready. You're going back at 37 to sit with those same 17 and 18-year-olds and start all over again. Okay, Lord, well, whatever. I just don't want to do any counseling. Don't make me do any counseling. I'll do biblical studies all the way through. What class is not available? Biblical studies. What class is available? Counseling. It doesn't matter what we tell the Lord. It doesn't matter what we have purpose. Today, as I speak, I do more counseling than I've ever done in my entire life. Everything I've ever told the Lord, okay, long as it's not this, I've done, okay? Be very careful about what you tell the Lord, because when you volunteer to serve the Lord, what you're volunteering for is whatever God's will is. And if God asks you to do it, and your answer is, yes, I will do it, then it's God's responsibility to empower you to be able to do that thing. And what Stephen is doing is so far past his pay grade, it's not even funny. But it's a huge point of encouragement for, you to, for me to tell you it doesn't matter what you feel about your ministry. Like right now in ministry, there's a lot of mental health issues. Like I said, I, I, I did as many classes as I could, opposite of counseling. So I got a minor in sociology just because it was available and I didn't have to do counseling classes. But the world that we live in today has called for so much counseling. And I feel it's interesting because that's not, I wouldn't consider it my expertise. And, but I think that the people who get counsel from me appreciate the fact that it's, all I can say is God's word. Like my only count, if you come do counseling with me, the only counseling I try to give is God's word. Rarely will I tell you well, this is what I think. Matter of fact, I will preface it if I do didn't counsel. Say, you know, let me share what I think. Otherwise, I'm only going to give you God's word because I feel like we don't need counsel. We just need to listen to what God says and do what his word is encouraged us. That's the role of the Holy Spirit to give us the power. And just like Stephen, what's the result? The result is he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Okay. This is super interesting, and maybe you didn't catch this. Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. Now, one of the crimes that Stephen is accused of, one of the blasphemies, is destroying the temple. Okay, that was back in Acts 6. The charge is outrageous because the Sanhedrin knew that Jesus was, in fact, talking about his body, not the actual temple. But there's a greater irony in this in the fact that Jesus was actually crucified because he prophesied what Stephen is seeing. Jesus said in Mark 14, I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and authority, coming with the clouds of heaven. So it was those very words that Jesus himself spoke to the chief priests that gave them the proof that they needed to give blasphemy to try to tell Pilate to have Jesus' life taken. 
And yet in this moment right now, Stephen's seeing this standing at the right hand of God. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about this. Is he standing at the right hand of God or is he seated at the right hand of God? This is an interesting little thing. But let's mention this. Heavens open up. Okay, this is kind of loaded, and the Son of Man is standing there. Before I get to sitting and standing, Son of Man in heaven's opening up. What do those have to talk about? Well, Jesus' favorite title for himself in the Bible is Son of Man. It's a title that goes all the way back to Daniel and Daniel's prophecy that the Son of Man would come within the clouds of heaven, the same thing that he's seeing. This idea the Ancient of Days would give the Son of Man dominion and glory and kingdom all over, over all people. So I love the fact that he's making consideration that the, the only books that they kind of listen to and believe are the Torah, the first five books. And so everything he's sharing with them is stuff that they would know, stuff that they would have an understanding to. And he's saying, hey, look, you not only missed out on who he was, but he even said, like I've told you before, he said it, and what have you done? You killed him for what he said. So let's address this. Is Jesus standing in heaven or is Jesus sitting in heaven? What exactly was he saying when he said, I see him standing? I looked at about 20 different commentaries on this. This is actually pretty interesting. And basically, this is what I've come to believe that it's saying. It's saying that Jesus was standing in this case because he was standing. When you stand in the presence of someone, what you're saying is you're offering advocacy or service to that individual. I believe in this case, since Stephen is the first martyr, that Jesus standing in heaven, he actually moved himself from a seated position, which the Bible tells us he's seated at the right hand of God. He stands to say, in regards to this one, I advocate for this one. I think he's there to literally let Stephen know, I know who you are, I know what you're about to do, and for the sake of everyone that's around you, I want them to know, I got you and I'm with you. The reason why I say that is also my dad is a CPA and I love math things. Why, what if Jesus was just standing for Stephen, like giving his life for Jesus? What if it was a salvation thing where Jesus stands every time? Because there was plenty of people who taught it was Jesus standing because Stephen gave his life and that Jesus stands for every salvation. This is going to be problematic. 86,400 seconds in a day, 24 hours. Estimates that between 30 and 32 million people a year nationwide, worldwide, make a decision. That equals one every second. This would be Jesus' new job in heaven, right? If he was standing and sitting for someone making a decision, it literally comes out to about 32 million, 31 and a half million. So I don't think Jesus is standing and doing that all day long. That seems pretty disruptive for the flow of heaven. And since he's outside of time, I think in this particular case, we can say this. Romans 8 says, there is no condemnation for those in Christ. The verbiage in Romans 8 is very uh, liturgical, like an attorney, like an advocate. So I'm very confident in saying this. The reason why we are going to face the Bema Seat of Judgment differently than those who will also face the Bema Seat of Judgment is we will all face the judgment seat. We will face it, however with the advocacy of Jesus Christ on our right. He will, he will stand with us. He will then look into the book of life, and he will read the names of those that he calls his own. Then, in that situation, as the Father says, what have you done with my son, Jesus Christ, rather than us trying to give a statement of our lives, trying to substantiate why we should be allowed into heaven, the advocacy of Christ says, this is one of mine. And this one who's in me is now condemnation-free. 
Amen? The freedom that we have to stand before a holy, righteous God who saw a tithe come before him, and the tithe wasn't what it was supposed to be, didn't say thank you for the tithe. He took the life of that individual and then gave the spouse a chance to affirm or deny the amount of the tithe. And when she um, confirmed the wrong amount, took her life as well. The holiness of that God, when you try to stand and account for your life, there's nothing you can say or do that would give you any hope or chance of making it to heaven. Church, if they don't have the advocacy of the advocate of Jesus Christ standing with you, the fullness of their condemnation will be faced. But Stephen is not only not facing that right now, but he's having the advocacy of Christ stand in and affirm him so that even on earth, in this situation, Stephen is fully blessed and encouraged. What does this do to them? It enrages them. 57 says, they cried out with a loud voice like a shrill, and they stopped their ears and rushed at him, okay? We're going, nanny, 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 nanny. What is going on with this? Remember, these are religious leaders. These aren't just nobodies. This is as good as it gets. Gnashing their teeth, screaming, plugging their ears. They're, they're like wild men. I kept thinking to myself, this seems more like a, a, a mob, like a... Like a, a like when the, when the law stops and the people just go wild. And all Stephen is doing is just, he's defending himself saying, look at you guys, look how you're acting. This is exactly how your fathers act. And you're doing it right in front of me. And they said, they rushed in, charged him, and then they have to drag him out of the temple. Why do they have to drag him out of the temple? Well, in their minds, they're trying to obey the law. And the law did mandate that if you were going to kill someone, you couldn't kill them in the temple. You had to have them dragged them outside of the temple. So there is some substantiation of why they dragged them out. But under the Roman law, they hadn't proved he was guilty. All he had done was give a defense for himself. No one had actually proved any of the charges. Screaming like little banshees with their ears plugged, they grab Stephen and drag him out. And just as his accusations are made, I couldn't help but think about this. What do stiff-necked uncircumcised in the heart, always resisting the Holy Spirit, what do these kind of people do? They murder the prophets. Exactly the four charges he just refuted to them is now playing out in technicolor in front of him. Church, one day those who make accusations against us, one day those who truly make offensive comments about Christianity or, or Jesus Christ, one day all those people will be reconciled. One day the true judge will reconcile everything to him. Until that day comes, we have to be careful to become judges of that, okay? God is going to reconcile everything that they've ever said and ever done. He tells us we're going to have to give an account for everything we've said and done. But in the meantime, this passage just reminds me that even though Stephen makes the articulation perfectly clear of what they said and what they've done, it makes no difference in their life, and they continue to do it, and he has to press on. 58 tells us they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. They laid down the garments at the feet of a young man, and they're trying to follow the Mosaic law and act like they're doing everything correct, but like I said, they hadn't even proved he was guilty. Now, stoning is an interesting concept, and we don't necessarily talk about it a lot because it's not part of what we do, but I looked in the, in the kind of comments and stuff, and there's actual verbiage in there about in order to stone someone, what you have to do, what you're supposed to do. And listen to this. this. This is the official kind of law of the day of what you're supposed to do. An official is supposed to take you out of court and then ask you for a defense of your testimony. 
Then you ask the person to acknowledge his crime, and then you substantiate that the person deserves the punishment. That was the rules and the regulations to stone someone. None of that is followed, once again. They simply take him out of town and then follow the process. They usually have an area in town where there's like a small cliff or a small kind of area of height. They throw the person off that. The person is supposed to fall in such a way that they land face up. They then have someone come over to them while they're flipped up and looking and place rock in their hand and do one large shot. Uh, the execution is only over when the person is no longer alive. If they die from the fall, it's considered it's supposed to be, and they leave them alone. If not, they will continue to slam stones into the individual, especially into the head or the heart, until the individual is no longer alive, which is powerful because we're going to talk about some stuff coming up in Scripture where people who were stoned, people who went through this process, later revive, and what is the first thing they do? Knock the stones off of them, and one of them goes back into the city. That's the upcoming passage that will be fabulous. The crowd then leaves the thrown stones on top of the individual as a reminder to those who pass by. And they'll use that pile with the dead individual underneath it and say, this is what happens to someone who blasphemy. It's supposed to be a warning. The act is completed, and they take Stephen's clothes, and they take it to the feet of, of another person. Who? The person who condoned the act. Somebody there was actually saying, this needs to be done, and I give you the authority to do that. The symbolic act of placing Stephen's clothes at this individual's feet, to me, now seems kind of ironic because this individual, Saul, who's just being introduced, is now going to become a major player in the, in the, in the scenario of the Christian church. How many times do we see someone who's the most dangerous person to our well-being as being a potential for someone that could be recruited in the church. Traditionally, I would say most people like to recruit into the church other people that are like them, right? But this is an encouragement for you. Not everyone that's like you has to be recruited. Matter of fact, some people who are not like you might be a fabulous choice because as we read about Saul, he's a very, very devout uh, persecutor of the faith. Acts 22 will tell us later on he's a Jew born in Tarsus in Sicily, brought up in the city, and he was educated at the feet of, guess who? Back in chapter 5, do you remember Gamil? The individual who stood up, the pragmatic man who stood up in chapter 5 and said, hey, we probably shouldn't kill these guys because if they're, if God, if they're of God, then God will support them. If they're not of God, they're just going to disappear. Okay? That guy, that number one Pharisee guy, Paul is his number one student. So you kind of have Stephen, the up-and-coming number one of the church, and now you have the number one kind of up opponent of the church. And they're meeting each other, and they're engaging together, and in this particular round, it looks like Saul is winning. Yet the clothes that are laid at Stephen's feet are going to have an incredible effect. Along with the fact that Stephen, the words that he's about to say, and the way that he dies are going to affect Saul so much differently than he could possibly imagine. When Stephen said in verse 59, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and cried out, who was he it, who is he iterating? Who is he drawing from? Now, do you guys remember what Jesus said in Luke 23 when he was on the cross? L Jesus also said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This similarity and kind of, there's a little bit of arrangement difference to what Jesus said in the one-two and what Stephen says in the one-two. There's a little bit of kind of discrepancy in the, in the lineup, but the verbiage is so close to being the same. I couldn't help but think of one thing. In looking up into heaven and being filled with the fullness of the Spirit of God, this is probably the same thing that Jesus actually experienced, right? 
He has the same confidence as Stephen's having, seeing the fullness of his father, seeing the radiance of what he's doing and accomplishing the will of his father. And so he speaks what the Spirit then gives him to say. Right? I talked about that passage last week. It's like when the attack does come, don't fall back on yourself to speak. Instead, simply allow the Spirit of God to speak for you. And what does the Spirit of God evoke? This Father, into your hands do I commit my life. Stephen is seeing Jesus standing at the right hand. He's full of the Spirit, and he's saying the same things. And then when it's 60, he comes, he says, and do not hold this sin against them. Right? Like I said, the order is flip-flop from Jesus's. Jesus starts with, do not hold the sin against them, and then, Father, into, my, into your hands do I commit my soul. The order's flip-flop, but the verbiage is, is pretty much the same verbiage. And then I couldn't help but think this. Stephen, remember, he says he's the first deacon. He's like the first volunteer. He's like a fabulous pastor. He's this incredible apologist. He's doing all these things in the first, first, first of everything, and now he's showing all these believers that are around him how we die boldly for Christ. Church, there's something, once again, that when I find these little nuggets in God's word, I think so many of us are worried about how we live for Christ, right? Living for Christ, dying for Christ, they're both going to happen, right? It's been appointed once for man to be born and appointed once for man to die. It's going to happen. But there's a way that you can actually go to the Lord. There's a way that you can actually share the last moments of your life that's not only inspirational, but it's life-changing. And I think just the fact that Stephen's invoking the same words that Jesus spoke, how powerful these words must have been to those around him. How many of us, if somebody was about to take our lives, would find the time to say, Lord, forgive those here that are doing this act against me. Forgive them because they don't understand what they're doing. Even though they've been doing this, even though I just told them, this is what your fathers did. Okay, you're doing exactly what your fathers did. Everything I just told you and you didn't listen to, you're doing exactly... Even so, let me show them amazing grace. Let me show them amazing kindness. Let me show them something that makes no sense to them. I'm going to show them how to be bold, even in death. And I tell you this, church, and I mean this, to be honest, no matter what you do, never stop throwing seeds. Never stop throwing seeds. Ever, no matter what the situation is, you continue to throw seeds until the Lord calls you home. Because the soil around him was fertile and it was opportunistic and the Lord was going to use this man's life in these final words. Because Saul not only condones this, but Saul has to see this. And maybe Saul heard Jesus on the cross. And whatever it is, these words are now percolating in his cranium. What does it ultimately mean? It means this. There was a need in the church. A need. It was just a simple need. Can someone help us feed the widows? And Stephen was either nominated or raised his hand. I'm not sure officially how it worked out, but he was seen as a young man of wisdom and of talent. And people nominated him, and Stephen was willing to meet the need. Feeding widows does not seem in the grand scope of things of the church like something that's overwhelming or significant. And yet here's another reminder for me to tell you as the church. There is no task in the church that is more significant or less significant than another. If God asks you to do something, if God allows you to be part of his church and serve his church, then no act or one act is more important or less important. They all serve a purpose in the will of God. And if God asks you to do something and then takes what you, t well, I can do this, and says, yes, but I need you to do this, be very careful about telling God what you can and can't do. Okay? 
on behalf of those who have stood before him and tried emphatically to say, you know what, Lord, like even Paul, I can't see, I'm having an issue, Lord, remove this thorn. The Lord never removed the thorn, no matter how many times he went back and no matter how many times he pleaded, he simply had to make peace. Okay, Lord, I now have the thorn, use the thorn. What do you want me to do with this? I have words, I have things I need to say. Call Barnabas, call Silas, call Timothy, have them write. We're going to develop a whole new ministry called Scribes, and they're going to learn from you as you speak God's word. Be very careful in telling him, because even in this thing, Stephen now has to know. Death was knocking on the door. Matter of fact, death was staring at his face, and all he could think about was, if this is what God has called me to do, and this is what God needs me to do, then I'm going to do it in such a way that I'm going to show up, I'm going to sign up, I'm going to serve God, and I'm going to trust God, and I'm going to ask God to use it for his glory. And in this, we're going to find out pretty soon, we'll find out soon enough, that God's not only going to take the loss of his life, but he's going to use that loss as the soil and the watering and the seeds to plant in the very enemy of the church. When I think about all the people who don't love God right now, when I think about all the people in the world that are kind of in opposition to God, I don't know how many of them are being invited to church or being shared faith with anymore. And so I just want to conclude with one final thought. Be very careful about thinking, well, this person should be shared with and this person shouldn't be shared with. That verbiage should never be part of how we invite someone in or share our faith. We should simply share faith with all. We should simply lay the beautiful things that God has given us before those feet. You say, what about pearls to the swine and all these different things? We don't know how the seeds are going to be received, right? The parable of the sower and seeds tell us there's many opportunities for how the seed will fall and be taken and stolen. That's all between them and the Lord. So Another like statement I kind of always remind myself is we do the right thing for the right reasons and we leave the results to God, right? In the end, Stephen did the right thing. There was a need, it needed to be met, and they asked him, can you meet this need? The results of what that meant to Stephen and how God would use it were between the Lord and, and that's it. And that's an encouragement I want to close with today for you. If the Lord is asking you to do something, if the Lord is asking you to be something, and it's beyond your pay grade, and it's beyond your spiritual mental grade, and you're thinking, I'm in over my head, I just, I cannot go any farther, you're probably in a good place. Now you need to do like Stephen and those that have gone before you and simply yield and hold fast and say, but Lord, for some reason, if you've placed me in this position, and I don't see anyone else in this field, gleaning this field, and yet I see how full the crop is, and I realize there's no one else here. If you want to use me, then Lord, here am I. Send me, and teach me, and show me, and share with me what makes sense to you, and may I speak on your behalf. And church, I just want to, that's my final thought for today, and I'm going to call the band up, and we're going to finish with the song as I pray for you guys this morning. No matter what God asks you to do, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 reminds us, there is no temptation come upon you for which God has not provided asunder, right, or a way through. In that way through, that does not mean you will like it. It does not mean you will enjoy it. It does not mean it's something that you want someone else to go through. But it does mean that in you going through that, you will have learned something about yourself that you didn't know before. You will have learned that you were able to do something that before you thought you could not do. And maybe for some of you, you would not do. And that's something you have to make peace with this morning because we're not here to tell God what we can do or what we can't do. All we're here to tell God is, what do you need done? And even when it makes no sense to you, if he says, you, go do this, like Stephen, go and do this, 
and be bold and pray for that encouragement and pray for that hope and pray for that spirit of God to speak through you because we have a desperate, destitute world that's going to hell in a handbasket. What is a, there's, a, there's a stairway to heaven, but there's a highway to hell. Right? Doesn't that tell you the difference about traffic patterns? How many people are on the stairway? I'm just saying, I, I, I'm someone who likes to see value in what's around me. Um, I just saw something funny, and I have to say this, okay? Honk if you love Jesus, right? That sounds really good. But I saw somebody, a Christian had to read, it was like a handmade one. It says, yeah, text if you want to meet him. <laughs> like, I mean, let's just be honest. We have enough around us telling us what the truth is. We just, it's hard to see it anymore. Church, let's not be blind to what perfectly clear in God's word. Go, make, baptize, teach. Everything else can be put to the side. We have one great call in our life. If we're not fulfilling that, we're missing the mark. May God help us not miss the mark. Father God, I thank you for the morning. I thank you for the opportunity that the, that the word of God brings, the, the simplicity and the significance of a simple, powerful message, Father, that you spoke through this man's life. A man who was simply a young and up-and-coming guy who saw a need in the church. And maybe in the scope of things, maybe thought, hey, this is a good task for me to do where I'm not going to get too much demand. And it's just allocating food, you know, push a loaf of bread here and push some seeds here. And I mean, this is great. But Father, you see things so differently. And every opportunity in the kingdom of God can mean so much different. I pray that this morning that no one in this church who came here this morning or that hears this message would ever belittle the work or act that they're doing for the kingdom of God. I pray that this morning that even the smallest act that someone does on a regular basis on behalf of the kingdom of God, Father, that they too would look up into heavens and see the radiance and glory of our almighty Father and be encouraged and be strong to know that our advocate, the Father, has his son standing there for us. And whatever we need in life, the Spirit of God will provide. Father, may everything that happens in this church continue to be such that the kingdom of God increases. We do it in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. Thank you. Can we unmute everything? Thank you. You know something? Let's, how about if we stand? If you can stand, let's do it.
Okay, Mr. Brad, our drummer is going to end us out on one more song, and I think it's a real good one. Nothing I hold on to. Heck, why don't you uh, Why don't you join me and let's let's read this together. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. Thank you, Mr. Microman. Thank you, Father. And just ask for blessings over this whole. And also, everybody keep in mind VBS next week. Keep them in your prayers. Let's power up and make that just a wonderful week for all the kids. And so right now, uh, Rich, do you want to introduce Rich? Small interlude of about two, three, four minutes. If you'd like to stay, if you're not a member, but you're interested in membership of the church, we do have some church membership stuff that we have to do. We have to do a vote. And that will take place, it's 11.19 in about four minutes. So if you're interested in staying, you can. If you're interested in leaving, you can do that as well. But we'll come back at 11.25. We'll give yourself five minutes. You got five minutes. You can...